Well, good morning. How many of you had a big week this week? Anybody? Big week? You know, big weeks are amazing because it, it stimulates all different kinds of emotions depending on what you're expecting that week. I remember the week that Cheryl and I got married. It was, it was on a Saturday, and uh, I, I just I couldn't wait. That emotion of excitement and anticipation, I was just so pumped. And yet, earlier in that week, it, I had to take a biochemistry plan. And uh, so it was a whole different kind of emotion. Uh, there was fear, anxiety, sleeplessness, <laughs> all those kinds of things. But big weeks expose the essence of who we are. And today, if you have your Bible, you might want to open up to Mark chapter 11. We are going to begin the biggest week, the well, last week, the biggest week of Jesus' life. Uh, this week is called the, the Passion Week, uh, or it's also called or referred to as the Week of Suffering. Okay. 25 to 30 percent of all the Gospels are concentrated on this final week. So in five or six weeks through chapter 16, we're going to we're going to shove. 25 to 30 percent of all the Gospels in these last few weeks, so uh, it covers an awful, awful lot. And uh, we're going to answer a lot of questions. We're going to answer questions like, why did he come into the world? Who is Jesus? Uh, what is he like? How in the world should we imitate him? Based on these things. Uh, but today starts the, the final week, and it starts with what we would call Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry. Uh, some people call it the tearful entry. That's what we're going to cover today. We're not going to cover the entire chapter, but I will summarize the end of it. It'll make a lot of sense when we get there. But in your notes, you'll also see an overview of that final week. Again, it's not written in stone because, I mean, there are some discrepancies of, well, that take place on this day or that day. But by and large, it's, it's pretty accurate. And some of the confusion lies in the fact that what we call, say, Thursday, isn't Jewish Thursday for them starts Wednesday night and goes through Thursday. Uh, so it's a little confusing depending on if it's using our terminology per day or their terminology uh, for a day. But the why of Jesus, why did he come, is so clear. And every single passage that we've covered in the Gospel of Mark, we do not know why. Why is he coming? Every single Sunday. He's come to save people from their sins, to restore a fallen humanity back to a holy and righteous God. This is what was intended from the very beginning until Adam and Eve went their own direction, did their own thing, and they fell. That's the fall of humankind. And the rest of the Bible now helps us to engage how is the relationship that we are supposed to have with God, how is it restored, and it's restored through Christ dying on the cross to save us from our sins. It's not based on any good that we do. It's entirely without our merit. It's a total gift of God, Jesus dying in our place, the very thing we should have experienced, the suffering and, and separation and death we should have experienced. Jesus experienced that on the cross for us. And then the goodness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, was then all imputed to our account so that we could live. Uh, a full life as a new person under the control of the Holy Spirit. That clearly is the why Jesus came. What this passage really answers is who is Jesus? And once we really understand who Jesus is, you're going to understand why he went to the cross. Why were so many people so mad at Jesus? So we're going to begin with just a little bit of historical uh 
preview to this so the background would be whenever a Greco-Roman conquering king would come to a nation or to a country, there are a number of things that would happen for him to come in, establish his authority, uh, his sovereignty. Uh, the first thing that would happen would be that he would, he would enter the city, but he wouldn't just enter the city. He would enter the city on a symbol. And it was a symbol of conquering. It was a symbol of dominance. Usually, it was a, a white stallion, some sort of white war charger. We're going to see this in Revelation. At the end of Revelation, Jesus will come in on a white war stallion, okay? So, but usually, a Greco-Roman conqueror would come in. Uh, they would enter the city. They would enter on this symbol, establish in majesty, grandeur, honor. And there would be all kinds of acclamations from those escorting him into the city and anthems of praise would be sung to him. Then the last thing that would happen would be this conquering king would then come into the religious center of uh, the, the country and uh, offer sacrifice on the altar. And that would establish this king as the sovereign over all religion and over the state. This would happen. And in essence, we sort of see this happening with some twists here. Now we'll walk through the twists. But the biggest thing that happens that's so different, instead of establishing his place as sovereign over religion, he will go in because the people so reject, instead of accepting him as the new king coming in, they absolutely rejected him. So when he went into the temple, he had to cleanse the temple because they had turned it into a den of robbers and he cleans it out because the people then ultimately wanted to kill him. So who is Jesus? Jesus clearly is the anticipated coming king. We'll look at this, how anticipated he was. He is the Messiah. Uh, in Hebrew, the Messiah. In Greek, the Christ, the Christos. He was the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. Jesus is, and this is what sent him to the cross, God in the flesh, God incarnate. So let's look at this triumphal entry starting in Mark 11. And we're going to see the entrance of the king. And again, uh, it's, you've got to understand that it's Passover. This is one of the two or three times, three times during the year that Israel would assemble at Jerusalem. They speculate there would probably be about 2 million people who would show up for Passover. About 240,000 families uh, would be there. And uh, so Jesus was there. And the reason he was going into Jerusalem at Passover this very specific time was uh, twofold. Number one, it's because the Passover is the picture of who Jesus Christ is. The Apostle Paul specifically says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Jesus is the picture of the Passover lamb, the sacrificed lamb that was the sacrificed in Egypt. And the blood was then put on the, the doorposts, the lentils, and the doorposts of the, of, the, of the house. And then the people of God then would be redeemed out of Egyptian slavery into a new life. So Jesus is our Passover lamb. The shedding of his blood uh, allows then the angel of death to pass over us. And we're released from bondage, the bondage of sin, not the bondage of Egypt, but the bondage of sin, so that we then could go home to the land of promise. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb, and this is the big why he came. And uh, th this is why whenever we celebrate communion, we're going to get to the specifics of this when we go through uh, Mark chapter, see, I'm going to cover this in a few weeks, Mark chapter 
uh, 14. We get to it. We go actually through the Passover, through the Lord's Supper, which is the picture of the, the, the Passover feast. And this is why in that Passover feast, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. So Jesus here is claiming to be the the lamb of the Passover feast. There's another reason he chose this time, and that is Jesus was running headlong into conflict. And there are a number of reasons for this. Just like David. Remember David when he ran into battle? And Mark even refers to the kingdom of David coming uh, here later in this passage. But when when David ran uh, to the battlefront to face Goliath, Jesus will run in to the battle. The religious Pharisees and Sadducees are, are there to excommunicate him, and he runs into the battle. Uh, the, the, the nation of Rome, or the Roman nation, are there to execute him because of sedition, and he runs toward it. And, and the thing that we need to understand more than anything is that he runs into the very just wrath of God for sin. That's for us. And he dies in our place. So now we see them coming near Jerusalem, verse 1, to Bethphage, to Bethany, two little towns right outside the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is now getting prepared. He's sending his two disciples to get, to get ready for the uh, triumphal entry. And you think, why? Why there? Why the Mount of Olives? It has to be more important than, well, he... He knew some people there, and he could spend the night. It was way more than that, far more important than that. This, this is the fulfillment of Scripture. This is, this is why you don't see any leaders of Israel at the triumphal entry. This is why you see them planning to take his life after this, because of what it communicates. He's coming in through the Mount of Olives, which is on the mountain ridge on the eastern side of Jerusalem. Let me just tell you really quickly, follow with me really quickly, of why this is so critical and why it is so impactful, especially to the heart of, of the Jews who are there. He's entering through the Mount of Olives, which would mean he would be going into the eastern gate. Now, why is that important? It's because of the prophecies in Ezekiel chapter 10 said that because the nation of Israel went so opposed to God, the leaders were against God. They walked away from God. The people walked away from God. So what happened in Ezekiel 10 is that the glory of God actually departs out of the eastern gate. And it was Ichabod, inglorious. God departs from Jerusalem at this point. There's no longer the glory of God in Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapter 10. And then what we find is you continue to read through Ezekiel. By the time you get to Ezekiel chapter 34, it's just, you know, the Lord is just unleashing on the leadership and how opposed to God and the things of God they were. But he says, you know, I'm going to have to come back. I, God, am going to have to come back and shepherd these people. The, the leaders can't do it, so I will come back. I will be the one who will shepherd uh, these people. And so then when you, by the time you get to Ezekiel 43, you then see the glory of God re-entering through, and here it is, the eastern gate, right by the Mount of Olives. And what, what you find then in the next, that's Ezekiel 34, 11 to 16, by the time you get to Ezekiel 36, now tell me if these words don't picture who Jesus is. 
When he comes in to shepherd the people, I will cleanse you. This is Jesus. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. I, I will be your God. And I will deliver you. You'll be my people. Do, do, you, do you see the impact on Israel? They knew what Jesus was claiming. He wasn't just some good teacher on a little Sunday school parade with palm branches. He is claiming to be God. And it was blowing their minds. We're going to hear, I mean, in a little bit, we're going to hear how upset they were about that. You remember when Jesus was born, what happened? Remember that the glory of God, the Shekinah of God had departed. But now when Jesus is born, you get to Luke chapter 2, verse 9. And what do you hear? And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. So at Jesus' birth, the presence of God is now back in the very person of Jesus Christ. Let's look quickly at the symbol of the king. He said to them, go into a village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied, and on which no one has ever sat. Untie it. Bring it. Matthew, Luke talk about it's, it's, the, it's the donkey along with the colt, the foal of a donkey. So they're bringing them both, the mother and the little colt, together. And if anyone says to you, remember this now, why are you doing this? Say to them, the kurios, the Lord, the Lord has need of it. And they'll send it back here immediately. Why? Why a colt? Why not a stallion? Why not at least a donkey? Why the colt, the foal of a donkey, one on whom no one's ever ridden? It's because Jesus is absolutely fulfilling Scripture again. And you get to, to Zechariah chapter 9. It's going to conclude with uh, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So let me ask you, is this some typical uh, monarch coming in to claim sovereignty over a state? No. This is God himself reentering. Do you see a white stallion? No, you see the colt. You see the foal of a donkey. Do you find some, some sovereign king who is filled with pride and arrogance? No, you find he is humble, it says. Is he tyrannical? No, he's absolutely just. He's absolutely merciful. Is he endowed with bloodshed? Is this how he's taking over this kingdom? Is he endowed with bloodshed? No, he actually comes offering salvation by shedding his own blood. Even for people who don't deserve it. Because he loves them. That's why Jesus comes through the eastern gate. And then you see the acclamation by the king's escorts. They went away. They found the colt tied by the door outside of the street and they untied it. Some of the people were standing there and they said, what are you doing? You're stealing a colt. You're untying this colt. And they said to, to them exactly what Jesus had told them. Do you remember what he said? He said to them, just tell them the Lord, the curios, the Lord has need of it. And they let him go. They brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their, their cloaks on it. He sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the, on the road. And others spread 
leafy branches, palm branches. This is where you get the Palm Sunday deal that they had cut uh, from the fields. So the Lord has need of it. Can I, let me just ask you a quick question first. And that is, how tightly are you gripping to what you perceive is yours? Your career, your home, your money, your time, your gifts, your ability. What if the Lord were to say to you, the Lord has need of it? Would you quickly, in a feeling of joy, I mean, that's how we're supposed to give joy, with a feeling of joy and privilege and honor, I can't wait. The Lord has need of it. I can't wait to give it to the Lord. Well, they take off. That, that would be a good discussion question for your community groups, by the way. How quickly do you really see it as the Lord's or do you really see it as yours? I mean, be super honest. Is it really yours to control or is it the Lord's that we eagerly give to? Be a great one to talk about. The twelve take off their garments. They lay them on the donkey. They lay them on the colt, which is right next to the to the mother. So there's the mother. There's the colt. They lay their robes on them. They put palm branches on the fields. Luke 19 also. By the way, you know Luke gets most of his information from Mark, but he also has examined a lot of other sources, and so his gospel sort of fills out Mark with a lot of color. You know, Mark is like the Etch-a-Sketch, and Luke is sort of like all the color. You know, it adds a lot, and, and Matthew as well adds a lot to it, even though Mark was written first. Luke adds that the whole multitude of his disciples, they began rejoicing and praising God with, with a loud voice for all of his mighty works. And that's everything that's happened before. You just see the mighty works of God in the little preview, the little bump preview. There's sort of a rehearsal of all the mighty works that Jesus has done. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the absolute acknowledged coming king. He is the Messiah. He's the Christos, the Christ. He, he is God incarnate, the Savior of the world. And then there's the anthem to the king. Those who went before him, those who followed him, were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And this anthem was out of you know, Psalm 118, which is part of the Egyptian Hillel, uh, which is Psalm 115 to 118, which is the Psalm of David just putting down his enemies, coming into Jerusalem for sacrifice, the establishment of his kingdom. Basically, it was what it is. And, and Hosanna means, save us now. That's the literal interpretation of Hosanna. Save us now. And um, uh, what we're going to find out, though, it's not all going to happen right then. We're going to find out in a few chapters in Mark that this ultimately is going to culminate in Revelation when it, when it absolutely all takes place. But for, for right now, and this is why Luke says there will be peace in heaven. He doesn't say peace on earth. That's not going to happen yet because right now the world is in opposition to Jesus. You read the rest 
of Mark chapter 11, you see tremendous opposition, opposition to Jesus. This is why Jesus in the rest of Mark 11 talks about the barren fig tree. It's Israel is just depleted. They have totally rejected Jesus. They've rejected the faith of Jesus. They've rejected the worship of Jesus. Jesus has to come in and cleanse the temple. They've rejected the authority of Jesus. So peace in heaven, there's not peace on earth yet, but it's psalms of praise to God for his deliverance. And uh, Luke adds another interesting detail here, and that is the Pharisees went up to Jesus and told Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because the Pharisees knew what this Hosanna was all about. In other words, they're saying, you can't take Psalm 118 and apply it to yourself. That psalm is far too great for you. You might be a good teacher. You might even be a miracle worker. You might be kind. You might be nice. You might do all those kinds of things. But don't apply Psalm 118 to you because you are not God coming back into Jerusalem. You are not God shepherding the people. You are not God who, is, who, who will redeem his people. And you know what Jesus replied then when they made that statement? Jesus replied this, and he answered, I tell you, if these, the disciples, are silent, then the rocks are going to cry out. Listen, the, the Bible never sees creation as something impersonal. The Bible never sees creation as, you know, Mother Earth or, or mother, mother Nature. Creation, obviously, is never to be worshipped. It's never to be adored. That's idolatry. But it is always to be respected. It's always to be taken care of. But what we're going to find when he says, if, if the disciples don't praise him, the rocks are going to cry out because that will happen when he comes on the white war charger. When we, when we look at Revelation, you look at Revelation chapter 5, you see creation singing out at its redemption. Paul says right now in Revelation, in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, that right now the creation, God's creation, is groaning to be released. It wants to be released so bad it's under the effects of the curse just like you and I are. It's groaning to be released. And that's why Jesus says, if the disciples can't say it, the stones are going to bellow it out. And that even this, even the creation cries out because it recognizes the sovereignty of God. That's why creation cries out. I mean, think about it. Here Jesus is sitting on this little colt. And, and, and it says, one of whom no one has ever set. Why? Because it is submissive to the sovereignty of the Lord Almighty. Now, I don't know if some of you might be in animal husbandry. Some of you have grown up on a farm. Some of you maybe on a ranch. And you know, if you take a mama and a little colt, one that's never had anybody to ride on it, do you think you can just jump on its back and go for a ride? Are you kidding me? Only if your name is Adam and you are calling that animal to be named. Or only if you are the second Adam to whom all creation submits. The point is the entire creation recognizes its king, but the leadership does not. 
The people of Israel do not. The only reason they want Jesus to come in is to set up the kingdom and to overthrow Rome. That's the only reason they want him. They, we find in just a few more days, five more days, they're all going to be out there yelling what? Instead of Hosanna, it's going to be crucify him. Crucify him. They reject Jesus as their king. They reject him as his Lord. They reject his mission. They, re they reject his worship. They've turned it into a den of robbers. They reject the need for childlike faith, the faith that can move mountains. You see that at the end of chapter 11. They reject uh, his authority. You see at the very end of Mark chapter 11. So what is Jesus like? When we look at this passage, what is he like? How can we imitate Jesus? Well, let me give you a few things. I think the first thing you see is Jesus is courageous. I mean, when he sets these things into motion, let me tell you, folks, um, he knows that his death will be just days away. This was a he, he. Let me tell you, he could have just gone and instituted the kingdom right then if he wanted to, but he knew we needed to be saved. We needed salvation. Let me ask you, are you courageous in what God is calling you to do? What is God calling you to do? Verse 3, the Lord has need of it. it. It might be a way to serve him. It might be just to utilize your time maybe to visit somebody in a hospital or in an old folks home or something like that. The Lord has need of you. Maybe it's something you own. Maybe it's money that you have. The Lord. It's His. We're stewards of it, but it's the Lord's. He has need of it. Or John 2, verse 5, at, at the um, marriage feast at Canaan, when the mother of Jesus tells those servants, whatever He says to you, do it. Do you have the courage to do what God is calling you to do? Or do you turn back at the slightest note of inconvenience? Oh, it might cost you a little bit. So do you turn back? Secondly, Jesus is humble. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation as he Humble, did you hear that? Not tyrannical, not filled with audacity and authority, but humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isn't it amazing? Here he is, king of the world. I mean, he is the king. Everything is his. Everything was spoken into, into being by a word. And he rides in to Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. When he preaches to the crowds from a boat, he preaches from a borrowed boat. After his crucifixion, when he's buried, he's buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus is so humble. He's totally unlike Muhammad who comes into Mecca with a sword. 
when you and I come to the days of our greatest triumphs, do we say, look at me? Or do we say, look at God. Look at God. I'm reading through the Bible again. Every year I try and read through the Bible. And, you know, you get to the point of Moses standing at the Red Sea. You know, Charlton Heston, you know, what a great picture. Uh, and Moses at the, at the edge of the Great Sea. And you have the Egyptian army behind him. And so, I mean, what does Moses say? Hey, everybody, get a load of this one. Put your eyes up here. Just watch me now. Doesn't say that at all. Don't be afraid. Stand firm, and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You remember, Joseph, how unjustly he was sold into slavery, in prison. I mean, he should have been out 13 years older if the butler and the cookie maker would have just done what they were supposed to do. But no, they, you know, he's in there 13 years. And finally, Pharaoh needs somebody to interpret a, a dream. And go, oh yeah, remember, there's this guy in jail. He's been there for 13 years. Go check with him. You know, what, what would Joseph have said? Oh, Pharaoh, man, can I interpret dreams? Just give it to me. Let me have it. And, and I, I'll wow you with the answer. It wasn't about him at all. Joseph said, Pharaoh, I cannot do it. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So here's Jesus at the moment of his greatest triumph riding into Jerusalem. He says, do not look at me. You look at God. I'm merely fulfilling prophecy. I mean, just think. Think of the things Jesus taught. I mean, is he filled with arrogance and pride or is it absolute humility? What did Jesus teach? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So when Jesus says to you, the Lord has need of it, or when Mary says to you, whatever he says to you, do it, do you pridefully think that you are worthy or entitled to what you have? God calls us to humility. Pray that God would be glorified in our humility. Thirdly, Jesus trusts God. They're crying out, Hosanna. Jesus, save us now. But I'll tell you what, in just a few days, they're going to be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Listen, celebration, I don't care how loud you sing or how high your hands are, but celebration is not discipleship. Enthusiasm is not genuine faith. Jesus trusted God through the most intense of suffering. 
How are you trusting God? And the decisions you have to make and your finances, etc. What gets your attention more? This is especially critical for leaders in a church. What gets your attention more? What, what, what gets your attention more? Is, is it the shout of the crowd? Or is it the voice of God? The shout of the crowd will always arrest your attention. But the question is, which one will you listen to? The crowd shouting? Or God who frequently speaks to us in a whisper? The whisper of his word. The whisper of his spirit. The whisper of godly counsel. The crowd shouted, Hosanna, save us now, Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus did not listen to the crowd or else we wouldn't have salvation. He listened to the voice of God. Fourthly, Jesus loves sinners this is why Jesus did what he did. All the teaching of his disciples point to the cross. Notice in Luke it says when he's drawing near the city, he's on the donkey, on the colt, riding in. And it says he wept over it, saying, Oh, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. I mean, get the picture. Here he is riding into Jerusalem to be acknowledged as the king and people are screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, waving the palm branches. You know, I mean, it looks more like a Sunday school program, you know, going on. And yet when you look at Jesus, you look at his, at his dark brown eyes and they're filled with tears, tears streaming down his dusty face. Because he knows that the cry of the crowd will all turn and to crucify him, crucify him. Jerusalem even means the city of peace. But they don't have any idea what it's going to take for them to have peace. The reason he's doing this is because Jesus loves sinners. He's going to go to the cross because Jesus loves sinners. He's going to die in our place because he loves us as sinners. And then all of his righteousness will be imputed to our account because he loves sinners. For by his stripes, we're going to be healed. All of that was hidden from their eyes. Folks, let me tell you, this world is desperately looking for peace. And we're looking in every avenue we, we think we can look. It's got to be in, in economic peace or political peace or gun control or economic parity or, or political harmony. Somehow there's got to be peace. There's only going to be one place there's going to be peace. And that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The message of salvation. That's the only thing that will bring it. I know many of you were, were heartbroken and, and maybe excited too for Billy Graham at 99 
going home to be with the Lord on the 21st on Wednesday. He's made an impact on so many people. I think of my own life. And I mean, this goes back years. You know, I graduated from high school in 1969, just an absolute sinner. My nickname was Animal. Can you believe it? I know it doesn't fit now, but it, <laughs> it was at the time anyway. And uh, so I go to LSU. I'm part of the LSU band. And, um, you know, the first year I'm there, you know, I, I didn't know it at the time, but some Christians in the band were trying to witness to me. I didn't know what they were trying to do. And uh, so anyway, the next year, my sophomore year, 1970, uh, they said, oh, Jeff, Billy Graham is, con of course, I've heard of Billy Graham. I know he's probably a good guy, but they, they wanted me to go to the Billy Graham crusade. So the last week of October for uh, five days, four nights, there was going to be the Billy Graham crusade in the LSU Tiger Stadium. There were 200,000 people who attended that crusade. 10,000 people trusted Christ. A thousand students trusted Christ. Uh, at that crusade. And so they said, Jeff, would you go? I said, yeah, I'll go. So I had an idea. I, I, I love to joke around. And, and I thought, I'm going to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mock the whole thing because I knew that they would have a altar call at the very end. So I thought, I'm going to go and just big, big mockery. So I remember dressing up for it. So, you know, you had the pits and the frats back then. So I greased my hair back, and I had a leather vest. I put on a leather vest over this white T-shirt, and I rolled up a pack of camels in my, <laughs> my T-shirt. And I had some boots on, some old leather boots. They looked like biker boots. So I had the boots, my blue jeans, this leather jacket, my hair greased back. And so I go to the Billy Graham crusade like that, and I'm looking at people looking at me like, this guy is from outer space or something. So I go in there and getting ready for my moment, for the altar call where I can run down and do my big deal, throw myself down on the ground, etc. And uh, I'm sitting in that stadium, and on October 24th, 1970, in that stadium, it was engulfed in this incredible lightning thunderstorm. And I think we have, this is an actual picture from the stadium. Uh, that's Billy Graham Prix. That is October 24th, 1970. And you can't see the rain there, but it's pouring rain. And I'm telling you, I was riveted. He preached on Luke chapter 23, verses 42 to 43. This was about Jesus on the cross, and there was the, the two criminals, and there was the one who was railing against him, and then the, there was the one who said, hey, remember me when you get into, your, into paradise? He said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He was preaching on that. And I can remember every time, he, he uses those fingers all the time, and every time he would use those fingers, lightning bolts would fill the sky. I'm not kidding. And at this point, I mean, it was the Holy Spirit of God just awakening my spirit. And, and I'm going, and I'm going to go mock this guy? Are you kidding me? And I felt just like the criminal who was railing against Jesus. And I knew, all of a sudden it hit me, God is going to strike me dead with a lightning bolt. I really did. I, I sat in that stadium thinking, God is going to strike me dead with a lightning bolt. And I remember as if it were yesterday. And Don Tapp, who actually, who's my pastor and who uh, put the whole thing together, remembers it like it was yesterday as well. And uh, I ran out of that stadium. I mean, I can remember running down, you know, it's in that massive LSU stadium, just running down all those the ramps all the way out, and I ran 
all the way to my dorm. And, and that was what God used to open my heart to begin a spark of life that God could use to make a difference. And I'll tell you why. You know why that happened? It's because there was one day when Billy Graham, well, he was there because the Lord said to him, I have need of your gifts and talents. And Billy Graham said, okay, Lord, if you want me to preach the gospel, I'll preach the gospel. And that's what happened to me because Billy Graham was faithful. And the reason he was faithful because there was another guy in his life by the name of Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham uh, was faithful to go to a high school in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. And it was right next to a house of ill repute. And he was going to talk about that. And so a bunch of guys were going to go over uh, that night and listen to Mordecai Ham talk about it. Billy Graham said, I'll never go. Actually, his name was Billy Frank. That's what everybody called it, Franklin. Billy Frank. So Billy Frank said, I'm not going to go to that. But he ended up going. And that's where God saved him. Because Mordecai Ham, when God said to Mordecai Ham, the Lord has need of it. And he said, yes, I'll go. And the reason Mordecai Ham said yes and I'll go is because there was a guy by the name of Wilbur Chapman. The same thing happened to Wilbur Chapman. The Lord said to Wilbur Chapman, will you go for me? Will you be an instrument of mine? And he did. And because of that, Mordecai Ham becomes a Christian. Billy Graham becomes a Christian. But the only reason uh, Wilbur Chapman did is because there was a guy by the name of Billy Sunday who was faithful. And he was a baseball player who had a day off and Billy Sunday went to hear Chapman preach. And Billy Sunday was faithful with the gospel who leads Mordecai. And it's because William Chapman was faithful when God said, I want to use your gifts. And the only reason he heard is because there was another guy who was a shoe repair guy by the name of Dwight L. Moody was faithful. When the Lord said to Dwight L. Moody, will you go? The Lord has need of it. And you know why it all started? I mean, I can, I can trace what God did to my life and six generations I can go back. And the reason Dwight L. Moody is because a Sunday school teacher by the name of Edward Kimball went to visit him while he worked in a shoe store. Do you love sinners? Don't think that God can't use you even in a little way. It might be as a Sunday school teacher or just somebody you know saying something that changes the world. Well, God wants to use you. God wants to use you in a powerful way. Everything you have, everything you have is His. You're merely a steward of it. Well, let's pray together. Lord, as we look at this passage, we understand that you are the King, the Lord, God incarnate, the Savior. And Lord, there's so much from your life that we can learn. How brave and courageous you are, humble, how you trust, and how you love sinners. And Lord, I just pray that if there's anybody here uh, this morning who has never taken that step of faith in Jesus, Lord, that they would Uh, instead of just 
singing out and celebrating, but there's no genuine discipleship, no genuine faith. I pray, God, that, that you would penetrate their heart now with a call from you. May they hear the words from you. The Lord has need of your life. Would you but trust him? He is going to the cross as we look at this passage to die in your place, to die for sin, for your sin, so that you could live a, a holy life that will make an eternal difference in the lives of others. And so, Father, I just thank you. I thank you that you're making that, that call right now. And, and if you're here and you would want to talk to somebody about your relationship with Christ, please come up after. I, I would love to talk to you. There are other elders, other people who would love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian. So, Lord, I pray that you would receive our worship now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.